Hello everybody and welcome to today's podcast and with us today we have Julia van der Soman who is the CEO of both the Pattern Room and the Sample Room and we're going to cover both in our podcast today. Welcome Julia, thank you so so much for dialing in at 6am from Melbourne in Australia. Oh it's always a pleasure to chat with you Debbie, thank you so much for the invitation. Oh no, thank you, thank you. You have an absolute wealth of knowledge in the fashion industry and I'm really looking to hearing your insights from some of our key questions that we've got to talk about today. So I'll dive straight in. So Julia, could you give us an intro to yourself and your career journey that's brought you to this point? Yes, definitely. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I, as uh, Debbie has mentioned, the CEO of Pattern Room and Sample Room. Uh, I've been in the industry for 30 years, but I started sewing way back when I was 10. So you can probably add another 10 years onto that. And my journey has been very much in the background technical side of the industry, although I have worked as a designer throughout Australia and the UK, spent some time over there. Um, and I now have a business called Sample Room, which is a product development business for the fashion industry, which is 15 years old this year. And we started Pattern Room, which is a tech business, uh, which brings together an online pattern catalogue for the international textile clothing market, first of its kind. And we currently have nearly a million designs on that website, which makes patterns accessible in 48 hours, which is a huge game changer for what is traditionally a very laborious, drawn out process to get better. Very expensive process too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So my, my core passion lies in really reducing landfill in the world by reducing badly fitted garments. Well done, Julia. (laughs) If we need to. Yeah, we need to accelerate that process, don't we? So congratulations oh. with the pattern room. A million patterns now. Yes, exactly. And it expands so quickly, you know, and it's it's wonderful to give people that choice at their fingertips every day, every hour of the week. It's amazing, isn't it? So that you can literally hop online and download a pattern for your brand um, mm-hmm. and then drop either, you know, they can be plain, they can just be, you know, plain plain dyed cloths etc etc or we can incorporate print in those but you literally allow them to download the dxf files of all the various sizes and then import them into their own programs yes absolutely with the accompanying spec sheet so you've got everything you need for manufacturing incredible resource it really is definitely definitely well well done so why and when then did you actually start the pattern room So the pattern rooms had a few iterations uh, Mm -hmm. and so I really started the first version about 10 years ago with just some core shapes that I saw in the industry. Now they were mainly in the traditional trouser, jacket, shirt, corporate wear area and those patterns have been used hundreds of times within our sample room business. Um, There's so many times someone comes to me with an idea and I say, is it a little bit like this? And they say, wow, that's exactly like that because there are some really core traditional shapes that are used throughout time and then over time we we just realized that the basics the basics of t-shirts and jumpers and jackets and tracksuit pants and leggings they needed rehauling because people think that they're an easy garment but they actually have a lot of technical differences mm-hmm. you could have a really badly fitted t-shirt and people just it just go through the production process and into the mainstream and nobody wants to wear it And we knew that in the custom sportswear market where there was especially a quick turnaround time, the need for great fitting garments was definitely needed and people were missing out on this opportunity because of the speed to market that was needed. Um, So even though Pattern Room, we talk a lot about custom sportswear, it really is for everybody. Mm -hmm. You can be a fashion designer. If you're a smart fashion designer, then you'll definitely jump on Pattern Room and find the pattern you need. And we've just um, 
targeted that particular demographic at the moment because we can see that they are such a it has such a need in that market. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the alternative to that is for the designer to be at the will of the manufacturer. And, you know, you see it just with retail purchases, you know, even like ordering a T-shirt in a different colour from one of the mega brands. The fit's different because it's actually come from a different factory. That's it. And this is where specification sheets at the beginning of the development process has become a bit of a bane of the industry, something I'm Uh very passionate about and I talk about a lot in our sample room business. The spec sheet is really only an indication and there's a lot of nuances that can happen dependent on the pattern maker who is creating the pattern. It could be the balance of the armhole, the neckline. That has a huge impact on how a garment fits and feels but it does mean that that same spec sheet can go out to four different manufacturers and come back with very different results. Yeah, yeah. And that they're never going to hand over that pattern. So you are beholden to that manufacturer every single time. But so incurring costs, pattern. incurring costs, the whole of that journey. Yes, exactly. Because sometimes it's a, a good designer will go through maybe five or six samples to get the fit that they want. Whereas if you provide the pattern to everybody then you've got that level playing field and you own the pattern. It means that you can then, if you want to change countries or you want to onshore, then maybe do a larger run offshore, that there's consistency for your customer. And so therefore you're reducing returns, aren't you? Absolutely. Returns, costs, sampling, absolutely everything. And also, you know, it just always comes back to the same thing, doesn't it really? Speak one language with a trusted source, Mm -hmm. really. Absolutely. so important and becoming women will move on to that a little bit later but it's so so important that those stakeholder partnerships are vital vital to huge brands or small ones really julia just before we move on then what would you say the key challenges are this year 2024 coming up for the fashion industry as a whole well it depends if you're manufacturing offshore or onshore Uh, If you're manufacturing offshore, freight is still a really big issue and not freight costs necessarily. Uh, In Australia, we have a big issue with the ports and union action on the ports. So ports are being shut down. For most of December, the ports were shut down in Australia. But we also, of course, have the Middle East and the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. And there are so many shipping channels that are going to be hugely disrupted, which is blowing out our shipping times. So I think freight... Every single time I do a workshop, the issue of freight seems to take on a different a different angle and a different issue, but it's just yeah. present in the process. Uh, we still have a skill shortage in the technical side um, and the manufacturing in Australia in particular. Um, there's no one replenishing the machinist and the factory, uh, factory workers. So mm-hmm. as we are um, one... There's no security for a manufacturer to start in Australia because designers tend to fluctuate between, oh, I want it onshore, oh, no, it's cheaper offshore, and then back and forth. But that cost of offshore is not actually cheaper when you pull the numbers down. So um, the economy is still an issue and people are concerned about how much to invest in their Mm -hmm. manufacturing and quantities. And so that you would think would herald that they would move back locally to do smaller numbers. But there's just a lot of uncertainty, I think, at the moment. Um, people are not willing to invest unless they know they're going to get that return. Well, they do need to invest in those in that supply chain and those those partnerships, don't they? You, you know, if you flutter about like a butterfly from one to the other, you you don't have the loyalty when you need to turn the tap on or off, do you? Or they're not there. Yeah, that's true. You don't support them; they disappear. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's the same problems then? Do those challenges affect both the, the mega brands and the independent designer? Is it just a scale? Difference in scale uh, or are there different challenges for small small and large customers really? I think with the larger customers, to get the price to where they need it needs yeah. to then be large quantities and therefore it's high risk and therefore they're simplifying their designs so a lot of people are saying that it's very bland in the marketplace. Everything's the same because everyone's yeah. in a very safe place and mm-hmm. no one's worried. The people who are doing well at the moment are the ones that are willing to stick to their unique style and put forward their own um, their own vibe, I guess. Brand identity. Mm-hmm. But if everyone simplifies it, then it all looks the same, then you're really just competing on price. So with the large brands, they still are, they're worried about committing to large quantities and not knowing what's happening in the future. Uh Whereas with small brands, they're just worried about committing and then whether it's onshore or offshore and what the price is. And so I think we need to need to think the smaller brands have got an an advantage of changing their business model in the way that they sell and the, what they offer. Whereas the larger brands don't have that, um, yeah, that's true. And it always depends on the percentages of bricks and mortar to e-commerce as well, doesn't it, really? And kind of global demographics for global retailers. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Within Australia, uh, there are some brands that just think very Australian-centric and some that think in an international way. And I think you need to in Australia because it's just not a big enough market to support yeah. support yeah. you with the population that we have. Yeah. But I guess those independents with e-commerce stores are selling worldwide. They are. Yes, they are. So they are in Australia. We don't have a huge amount of independence, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, online stores in that way. I mean, internationally there are. So yeah. that is the aim for a lot of the high-end designers to get onto those larger websites. Amazon's a tricky one because you do get lost in the mix, don't you? Yeah, like all marketplaces. Mm-hmm. The algorithms and the sponsorships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I just think you need to be unique. Starts, particularly in the startup market, which is an area that I concentrate on quite a bit, find your true identity and stick to it and stick to it in a very strong way and build from a very small amount of stock to gain that loyal customer and then have that flexibility of design as you build up rather than going really big to start with and then you're really stuck with a lot of stock and not a, a lot of variation in your stock turnover. It can be a real trap for people. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, learning about what you're doing right at the beginning as well. I think that's why the pattern room's so good, isn't it? Well, we'll talk we're gonna move on now to talk about the benefits of three D and digital fashion and, mm-hmm. and the workflow. But I guess, you know, the message for for it's it's the message for brands and independent designers is that, you know, they really need to know the language of fashion design from from the moment of, you know, the moment it's created all the way through the supply chain to the other end in order to make the right choices. Um, my, my view is that 3D and digital fashion is really helping that. How do mm-hmm. you think, uh, what, what do you say are the benefits, Julia, for 3D and digital fashion and the workflow moving forward? What I really like about 3D and digital workflow is it gives people a visual tool early yeah. on. Yeah. And I think the earlier we can make these decisions both on the visual, to get feedback, to get costing, the better. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, you would have to wait until you went through a huge process, the pattern making, sample making, printing or dyeing fabric and then final samples before you could put it on the mannequin to see the whole picture. What time frame would that be, Julia? 
Uh, depends how organised the designer is. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere from 12 weeks to six months. Yeah. Uh, it just depends on how quickly they can react. It's never, well, we find it's not really the delay is not in the pattern making and sample making. It's in waiting for fabric, waiting for information, things like that. But probably yeah. the quickest we can do a full development is 12 weeks. You can currently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, in, it's so interesting, isn't it, when you see the marketplace and how quickly it's shifting. And mm-hmm. I guess for those independents then that have access to 3D and digital fashion, they can really speed that up. Mm, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And when people are looking for more feedback from customers to see whether it actually hit the market or mm-hmm. servicing what they need, then 3D is fantastic for that. It I is. think that the downside of it is that it does lose a certain element of uh, people were saying, oh, you go 3D straight to production. Mm-hmm. And there is still the need to have it on a body. There's still the feedback from a fit model to turn around, see what's happening with an armhole and yep. various things. And um, I've sort of been using Clo in the reverse way where I've perfected a pattern on the body and then put it into Clo 3D and there are some nuances and some differences. And so mm-hmm. I just think we need to be aware of that. It's mm-hmm. not the absolute and it doesn't create the absolute perfect pattern. And how can it when it's not on a body? It's still algorithms, it's still digital, it's still it nuances to that. So it still needs that double check and that we still need to be aware that there are communication needed on to, to the factory. How is the hem finished? What's happening with this? They still need to see something so they can understand how they are going to replicate that. Absolutely. And sizing is a huge issue globally as well, isn't it, Julia? I mean, it's, it's it's crazy that you know a size 10 or a size 12 or a size 14 they they in the same continent in different manufacturing chains they are mm-hmm. so different i think that there's two sides to this i think that there's uh sizing and then there's bad pattern making uh-huh. <laughs> so there's times when i'll go into certain chain stores and i'll try on a garment and i keep on going up a size and up a size until i get to the largest size they have and i say this isn't a sizing thing. This just feels weird. Yes. It may be that the sleeve doesn't balance out with the body and fit and so you feel like you have to keep on going looser, but it just makes the body looser. Yeah. So bad pattern making is a, one of the causes of people sizing up mm-hmm. to try and create a much better feeling garment. Sometimes people squeeze into a smaller size than they should because they're not wearing it as it should be styled. So they may yep. find an oversized shirt and go, this is crazy, I can fit into the size 8. It's like, yes, but it was designed as a style that you would wear the size 14. Yeah. So there is that as well. And then there is, I, I see less of uh, it on a sizing issue than the other factors, but, yeah, definitely. There's vanity sizing. There's also the issue between standard sizing and plus sizing. It gets yep. a bit hazy around the middle around size 16, which is why. Literally around the middle. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then there's people who are not really designing to their market. Yes. You know, people have nuances in their body shape at different ages, as, as we've talked about today. Mm. And I think that um, we need to be very clear on who our customer is and what we're designing for and sticking to that and having that consistency of fit model in our business so that our customer who comes to us and says, I love your garments, it fits me so well, that everything fits them really well. Yeah, you're right though, aren't you? Because, you know, body shape as as, as the human body, male or female, ages changes. Mm. And where those brands are positioned 
so important, isn't it, for everyone to get closer to the consumer so they understand them and understand the need for the need for good fit and also what good fit brings. I mean, it's, you bring it basically brings happy customers and less returns, which are a huge problem for the fashion industry. Huge problem, and I think for a lot of people, they think something's returned and resold, but often it's not. That's very true because they're worried that it's been worn, that it what someone done with it you know smaller brands may do that they may check over but larger brands the time and effort it takes is not cost effective so that goes straight to landfill it hasn't even been worn really it's very sad yeah it is it's it's absolutely crazy isn't it in today's in in today's marketplaces with environmental and sustainability factors it's insane that we don't do this more we don't use more 3d technologies and just get a lot cleverer about everything that we're doing really I guess one of the big problems there is, you know, from my side and your side, you know, we both see some incredible technologies. But can the industry actually digitise the design process at scale? Where are the challenges for the skills gap? Mm -hmm. Gaps. So the challenges and the skills gap in the technical side, I think, are helped in somewhat with with the digital process because that allows for better communication between yes. the design element and the technical element. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the – it allows it to uh, – the communication between a pattern maker creating that 3D-dimensional image yeah. and the designer so they can say, yes, that's what I mean, or can you tweak that? And it happens in a very quick, easy way rather mm-hmm. than a long, drawn-out process where we have to redo a sample and remake it. Yeah. So that can definitely be a help. Because I understand even as a designer, they're very – creative and very visual but you still need to see it in the fabric with the print and the color on a body to actually see how that is developed i i am worried that 3d pattern making is going Mm -hmm. to skip over the traditional pattern making process and so we're going to lose a certain skill set there because it looks good enough on the body to send through but we have missed those nuances that make a pattern feel beautiful because we still need that tangible physical process for people, new pattern makers to learn how to fix fit issues, how to make things feel better. That's impossible to do on a tiny screen. It needs to but be it, on a it, it, You know, it's also important in there as well, isn't it, to make sure that people engineer garments in the right format as well, you know, with a, with a mind for how they're going to be sewn and how operationally they're going to go through the factory floor. You know, that's Absolutely. key to their price pointing. Absolutely. And I think as a pattern maker, you need to know how to sew and not all pattern makers do. When I'm making a pattern, I'm already thinking about how cost effective it's going to be in production. Yes. And that's a really key part of an experienced pattern maker as opposed to someone who's just come out of fashion school. You have that additional wealth of knowledge that you say, don't do it that way because it's going to be really expensive or you might find Mm -hmm. a machine like that or the machinist will make mistakes yeah. And so having that ability to create the pattern and specify how the process is made is yeah. critical. So definitely needing that skill set. Yeah, definitely. And also, you know, it's kind of the same in print. You know, it's totally the same in print, actually. You know, a, a great commercial print designer, textile designer, knows mm-hmm. how to create a printed pattern for the for the right demographic, you know, C1, C2, whoever it's going to for the marketplace. And they know how to do it so you don't create seconds. And I guess kind of in the fashion market, if you if you have just kind of run them both parallel, you mm. could also reverse engineer a garment. 
because you understand how it's actually manufactured. So you can go through the sampling, you can put that out to various sourcing partners to get your quotes Mm -hmm. back. And if it's coming out too expensive, you can reverse engineer it because you understand how it's actually made. And you take control of that supply chain, don't you? Absolutely. And you become an easy customer. Yeah. A manufacturer that receives a great garment that they know that they can put into their manufacturing production line and it's going to come out as a great garment at the end with Uh less faults and less repairs, Mm -hmm. you're going to become a nice customer to work with, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you see signs? We do hear definitely in the UK of um, all of the academic sector really kind of developing new courses, adding new modules to existing courses to make sure that the digital agenda does start to filter through um, into the next the next workforce, I guess, basically. Do you see signs of that over both in the Australian market? And I know you have a deep, a deep understanding of the American market as well. Yes, definitely in the Australian market. I had dinner over the Christmas period. I had dinner with a head of school from Canberra Fashion School, and she uh-huh. said they're definitely introducing that as a key part of their curriculum that they're rewriting at the moment. Yeah. And I know that within the Victorian schools as well, it's really important, which is fantastic because uh, – as with all businesses, we can't afford or there isn't really a lot of training for somebody once they get into the industry. So we're reliant on the schools bringing the new workforce through to bring those skill sets. So we yeah. can employ somebody who's maybe a junior but has this fantastic skill set, which makes them a wonderful employee if that's what you need in your business because uh-huh. it means that myself as a business owner, I don't have to go out and learn that skill to then train other people. They can bring that to the business. which is critical, but they are definitely looking at this, particularly in Australia where we are very much about an innovation base. Our wages are too high to be a really strong manufacturing base. So we have to bring the innovation and those additional skills that others don't necessarily have to communicate what's needed across the board. Yes, and and that's the conundrum with reassuring and nurturing, isn't it? Always is when it comes down to sewing and actually, you know, having those skills which are totally undervalued in our industry. Having those local to design and manufacture is, you know, it's it's an absolute lottery, isn't it, really? It really is. And that is a very hard skill set to to change. Um, I've had a recent experience where I've employed a couple of machinists because we have small run production in our business as well. So I'm at the forefront in trying to make local manufacturing work. Yeah. And when a machinist has only... um, has worked in a larger company where their job has been one particular part of the process. For example, they have just sewn the left pocket for six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they totally lose all their other skills. And I know it's not not beneficial to the employer to multi-skill based on level of pay and Mm -hmm. they might leave if you train them too much. There's all these factors that come into it. And it's really sad because... They, these people are in the workforce. They are happy to be a machinist. They're happy with the salary, the yeah. environment, the job to do all day, yet they don't have that skill set. And that's where I think the government need to help with training up these people so they are multi-skilled rather yeah. than trying to convince a student, a fashion student, to become a machinist, which is it's going to be an impossible. Yeah. <laughs> it's just never going to yeah, happen. It's not going to happen. Take yeah. it off the table. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I totally agree with you. We have to recognise those skills and reward them. Yes, definitely, definitely. Or just help them upskill so that they are more employable. Um, And I don't know if that necessarily is 
it's a really tricky conversation. Is that the job of the employer because they're going to benefit from it? Are we getting paid enough for the people who are sewing to be able to do that? Or do people just downsize and they only do much smaller production runs? Yeah. It's a, it's a dilemma for a lot of manufacturers these days. Yeah, which leads us very nicely onto our next question, Julia. So mm-hmm. let's talk about sourcing. How are the trade routes changing then? Probably with a view to attracting and landing with so manufacturing the right locations, I guess. Do you mm. see that in Australia? When I know yeah. it's happening in the US. Definitely. Um, of course, there is a move away from China at the moment, yep. just for fear political reasons. Uh, and so within Australia, we're seeing a lot more people moving to Vietnam, okay. still exploring, you know, Turkey is just really expensive for shipping for us and uh-huh. the areas that the UK would be manufacturing in Portugal, although there is definitely a feeling that uh, people are looking to offshore manufacturing that is palatable for people. Portugal seems like, you know, a lovely country to manufacture in, so someone will happily buy something from Portugal. They might not from other countries. Um, you know, unfortunately, the Ukraine, which was a huge manufacturing industry. Yes. It's going to be decimated for a long time, and I really hope that when the time is right that we can yeah. resurrect that for the people. Uh, we've got a few other interesting ones within Australia. Fiji is an interesting one for us to uh-huh. manufacture. It's a very different country to manufacture because it's a CMT country, not an FOB country. Yeah. And what I mean by that is you have to deliver everything. You have to treat it like it's a onshore manufacturer, even though they're offshore. And they also have uh, different ways of manufacturing. They're good with basics and schoolware and sportswear. They're not great at high fashion. Okay. Onshoring is still a, a, an interesting um, idea, and I talk a lot about this. I do a, a webinar probably three times a year called The True Cost of Offshore Versus Onshore. Uh-huh. And I've I, watched, I think I've seen that one. Very I think good. you have. And I love presenting this because it, it literally blows people's minds. Mm. They, they watch it and they, they start off thinking, no, no, offshore is cheaper, and then after the hour they think, wow. And then someone always pipes up and says, yes, I know this for fact. I did both. It's no cheaper. Yeah. Because I think we have to take all the factors in and that's the hardest thing. We're not comparing apples with apples when we're looking at production pricing. The US is in the same dilemma as Australia. You know, they have a, a limited skill a base within America for machining, although there's some really interesting factories popping up that are robotic and automated and yep. doing yeah. on demand. And I would love to go and see that. Maybe we can do a visit there one day, Demi. Yeah, uh, we should do that. Yeah, but they're still very much kind of, yeah, they're still very kind of the nuances of fingers, you know. So it's fine for T-shirts maybe and good for jeans. Mm -hmm, But it's, mm -hmm. you know, with AI and everything else advancing, who knows when we'll get there, but it's not going to be tomorrow for fine fashion, is it? Well, I think definitely, and um, I think you are absolutely right, fingers of machinists, they need to be treated for the gold that they are. To see a beautiful machinist sew is just something to behold. I think we need to concentrate on the spaces between the sewing because that's where the majority of time is lost. Uh-huh. And so in creating the robotics and the the workflows so that that is not a, a human doing that, it's a machine, can yeah. definitely cut the time down a huge amount. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Just in yeah. order processing and everything else, moving things around the factory floor really and also ergonomic design of manufacturing which you know, right. so often grows organically and really if you were to take an aerial view, it's nothing's in the right place and they're losing hours moving things left and right, left and right. Even, Even between sizes. 
yeah, exactly. But you move the wrong product an inch enough times and you've lost a hell of a lot of production time. Yeah, it almost doubles. It mm. almost doubles. Mm. It's, inc- it's incredible. That, again, Julie, you're doing well here. Leads us nicely on to our next question. So looking with a worldwide view, I guess, are garment manufacturers onboarding new technology and digitising? Can they afford to do that, some of them, when they're working on such low margins? In Australia, they can't afford it. We uh, we have uh, dye houses that are ready to close down. We have niches that are closing down because nobody is willing to invest. Uh, personally, I invested in a buttonhole machine and a press last year, and I'm kicking myself because that's a good $50,000 that when manufacturing slows down, then is that a waste of money or is that an essential thing for me, for my yeah. business? Yeah. Um, to go more than $30,000, $20,000 is something that just, is just not – doesn't give the return that's needed and so we don't have all the machinery that's needed for example um, the machinery that does sharing I can't find that anywhere in Australia and no one's about to buy that when you can get garments with a shared waste from China you know by the dozen so when you are manufacturing or onshoring your manufacturing you do need to be educated and creative to mm-hmm. understand how to get around your design ideas with what you have on hand. And I think that's what uh, the difference between a, a smart designer or a somebody who's come from an offshore environment. And I often say that we need to treat offshore manufacturing and onshore as totally different industries mm-hmm. because somebody who's come from offshore is going to be like a fish out of water with onshore manufacturing but if you've grown up in an onshore environment then offshore is easy because you understand what's happening behind the scenes yes that's the thing though isn't it understanding the whole process it comes back to those skills again and being able to use them to ask the right questions of those suppliers really wherever they are because so often the needle is just pointed at a price point and not the method of manufacture. And as we move more towards regulation, et cetera, et cetera, and sustainability, we need to know how these products are actually manufactured. You know, social responsibility, ethical, everything all needs to has to be part of the legislation, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think just to, to the point of sustainability, um, I sustainability is often thought of as the environment. But I'm mm-hmm. thinking more about sustainability as sustaining a brand and sustaining a business. Agreed. And what happens with internally to reduce your costs, to reduce waste, to ensure that your people stay in the business, that you don't have a high mm-hmm. turnover of staff. And yeah. that's about training. It's about education. It's about workflow, using what technology we have to allow people to enjoy their job and do it efficiently and effectively so businesses can sustain themselves in the coming yeah. years. It's yeah, a critical part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also that kind of looking at stuff as well, thinking, you know, you you build a business model to a certain scale. You don't have to build a business model that has predicted growth for the next 20 years. Exactly, exactly. And I think education is a huge part of that. We have a few different arms of education in our business. Mm -hmm. We have a startup program for people who are looking to start fashion businesses called the Fashion Label Launchpad. And we run a workshop every Uh, four times a year called the Start Your Local Fashion Business Workshop. We actually have one coming up in a couple of weeks. Great. Introducing a consulting arm for more established businesses so that they can um, get that support that's needed to create a workroom that is more effective and efficient and a nicer place to be that 
the systems and processes and technology of my 30 years experience in working in multiple businesses um, to help people just grow and survive and thrive in the coming years. Yeah. I'm going to change our next question slightly, actually, Julia, because we've covered a few of the points already. If you were going to advise somebody new to the fashion industry, would you advise them to manufacture nearshore or offshore in the first instance? Nearshore, 100%. (laughs) And that's really about a couple of things. It's about having control over when they can produce. It's um, being able to stagger their development and their production. Because when you go offshore, you're there to commit to production and development happens towards that production. Whereas when you are developing locally, you're doing a development process and perfecting that. When you are happy, you move to production. It's organic. So, yeah. And also the quantities. There's no no startup designer. I don't care how famous you are or um, <laughs> who you have on your TikTok list or what it is. You need to start small so that you can turn over stock, so you can have something fresh, so you can test the market before you make larger quantities. And yeah. as much as people say they would like to, they, they can do small quantities overseas, I think that you're working in sampling room, not production rooms. And as soon as the larger orders come through, you'll be kicked out. And I've seen it happen so many times. And also it's a false economy because they're giving you a cheap price now. But if you don't bump your quantities up in a huge way next time, they're not going to take you on. And so you've lost <laughs> this person at the price point that was set and therefore you are, you've just, it's a very... It's like quicksand for a business. It's yeah. not a sustainable base to start on. Yeah, yeah, just to remain as agile as possible, really, by you know honing the craft and do, learning from people that are tangible, people who are near to you, who can actually help you with the knowledge that you need to onboard. And I hear too many, too many stories of people that have lost thousands of dollars with mm. offshore by just not knowing those nuances to manufacturing, to understand what was being asked and what they should be demanding or requesting from the manufacturer yeah there's so much to learn isn't there but there so is and that's gained. What, yeah. <laughs> so much to be gained so much to be lost and that's what the fashion label launch pad was introduced for just to help yeah, people through yeah. navigate that first year and beyond definitely well julie julie you have so 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 much knowledge we could chat for hours and we have done in the past so, <laughs> <laughs> it's so 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 lovely for you to join us again and um, so nice to just get your insights on the questions that we've posed today so thank you so so much for joining is there anything else that you'd like to add tell us a little bit about the the latest workshop that you've got coming up then just have a little recap on that because that was i've i have been in the room on those and they are they're just so 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 rewarding yeah, wonderful. So the, the workshop that's coming up is called the Start Your Local Fashion Business Workshop. Uh-huh. Even if you're not doing fashion, it still applies. And it really is the education of the starting of the process. So we go through uh, what the costs are, what the timeline looks like, what your skill set is needed, um, the mistakes that are made, common mistakes that are made. And it's a really an introduction to our Fashion Label Launchpad program. Yeah. But it's a four webinar series because there's just so much information and people love it. They just really understand what we're doing this time is building a business plan, basically. What will it look like? When will you launch? What would the cost look like? Um, Just so people have got a real true understanding before they take that next step or if they're looking to come back from offshore, how is this different? How do I need to plan out my, my yearly plan, my product, 
What do I need to know in order to move forward? There's a free webinar that we run. Um, there's a link on our website, on our Sample Room website, sampleroom.com.au. Yep. Yep. It's be the easiest way for people to find that webinar. But it's a wonderful festival of fashion. <laughs> there's a huge chance for people to ask as many questions as they like. There's a Facebook group, and I absolutely love teaching it each time. No, you do. You give so much back, Julia. Really, really do. Admire everything that you're doing there. And it's so, so important that we sh- we nurture the next generation. And we also nurture the current generations in order to help them switch to more sustainable practices. It's so, so important for the future of, of the fashion industry and how we move forward to reduce waste, isn't it, really? It really is. And it's going to take a different way of thinking and a different mm-hmm. way of approaching business and working yeah. with the right partners so that you can create that sustainable business for yourself as well as the environment. Yeah, exactly. Sharing knowledge, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Julia, thank you so much for getting up so early this morning in Melbourne. Anytime, <laughs> Debbie. I always love chatting with you. <laughs> oh, you're a star. Thank you so much and um, look forward to speaking to you very, very soon.